Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by my co-host Andre Ganuela. And Andre, it's been another week. A lot has happened. Where are we starting? So let's start actually in India. Uh, so as we mentioned before last week, and as you have probably been seeing for the past few weeks, uh, India's been having just a very difficult time. It's a very tragic situation that's occurring there with the new COVID surge. Uh just today, I think Thursday, there were a record 412,262 COVID-19 cases in a single day, in a single day, uh, which is just, it's its nuts. There's about 21 million uh, cases there total. And uh, I mean, I think really the, the public health system there, the hospital system there is just extremely overwhelmed. And I mean, you're talking about a country that has around one and a half billion people. A lot of these cities are very, very dense. I mean, you talk about New York City, you talk about Chicago, Los Angeles. Those do not compare to the densities you are experiencing in like New Delhi, in Bombay, in Calcutta, and so on. And what it's looking like is the country just cannot handle this. The country cannot handle these surges. I mean, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, uh, they had had you know, all these like different like rallies and stuff or a few, like maybe a few weeks ago or months ago uh, where people were largely maskless. So yes, perhaps, you know, one can say, okay, human behavior contributed to this, but it really appears to be policy failures, policy failures that, you know, have really concerned a lack of investment in, you know, these healthcare systems and so on. I mean, I mean, it's tragic because I mean, I've just seen so many things on Instagram, for example, Instagram stories for the past few weeks about people begging for oxygen tanks, people trying to figure out where can they get oxygen. And it's just a significant juxtaposition. Like, you know, when we're living here in the United States, it seems like, okay, things are sort of returning back to normal. People are going out a bit more where the CDC lifted the, uh, you know, the mask mandate for outdoors activities, unless of course you're in a crowded space, more and more people are getting vaccinated and so on. So, I mean, uh, what's happening in India is just a human tragedy, just a, just a sheer human tragedy. And uh, it, it's difficult to watch. I mean, having many friends from the, uh, the country myself or you know, having many people with Indian roots, uh, it's, it's just a tragic thing to watch. And I mean, I'm also observing this sort of spreading around South Asia. I think Nepal is also having a very similar trend line with regards to COVID-19 cases. I know I've been watching what's been happening in Sri Lanka, by the way, the country I was born in, and they're reporting about 1,800 cases a day uh, for a country with about 25 million people. That's a lot of cases. And these countries do not have the healthcare systems to, uh, to, to handle this because this is such a massive surge. Uh, Ryan, what are your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, I mean, this is not just an Indian problem or a South Asian problem. This is a global problem, that, that being India dealing with this COVID outbreak. And so you have the threat of new variants, right? So with, with this massive spread of coronavirus in India, the threat of, the, of, of emerging new variants is very real. And that, of course, puts pressure on the efficacy of the vaccines uh, that are being distributed around the world. And so with that, I mean, it also puts pressure on vaccine supplies. And so India is a, a major vaccine manufacturer. They, their you know, pharmaceutical industry is very significant. And of course, you know, they've halted COVID-19 uh, vaccine exports because they're trying to prioritize their domestic needs 
Um, and so, of course, you know, overall India being, I think, the sixth largest economy, that puts pressure on the global economy. And so there's all of these, you know, things that impact the world. It's not, again, not just an India problem. And so I think, you know, just reading through the news, Andre, we saw that the, the World Trade Organization is seeking to temporarily lift these patent protections for these vaccines. We talked about the IP behind it last week. And the U.S. has actually thrown support behind it. The U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, Ambassador Tai, uh, said that you know the U.S. is backing this. She said, "quote unquote, extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures, and lifting these patent protections is certainly a way in which that can be done." Yeah, and certainly, I think, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, the administration before they had basically said, like, you know, we we like intellectual uh, property protections, but this pandemic is a bigger problem. It's a big problem. And, you know, we got to, you know, raise that waiver. We got to end that waiver. We got to, you know, put a waiver in actually for those protections for the vaccines. But uh, that doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, you lift those, that the vaccines are immediately going to go, right? Because uh, one, it's going to basically allow some of these countries to produce the vaccine within their borders. Like India could produce it, perhaps Sri Lanka could produce it. Nepal could produce it, but also what does the capacity to produce look like in those countries? Uh, so it's uh, it's it's a step in the you know in that particular direction, in the right direction, but uh will it actually be effective? Probably, but we'll have to see like you know what actually happens. And uh, the IP protections were actually a very it's it was a very controversial issue for the past two weeks. Uh, Many people were pushing for the Biden administration to raise it. And, you know, China and Russia have sort of been sort of going in with their own vaccines they've been offering. I think Russia sent in, from what I know about Sri Lanka, they sent in uh, some Sputnik vaccines as well. And uh, Ryan, did Biden mention anything about the AstraZeneca vaccines? Well, uh, Andre, AstraZeneca is, you know, actually quite interesting because it's, it's, it's part of this effort by the Biden administration to send out vaccines around the world by. July 4th, Independence Day, which is certainly quite a symbolic thing to do. And so we'll likely see that, you know, the U.S. is, because we've been able to kind of tackle uh, COVID-19 in a more of an effective way now, uh, we now have excess capacity and excess vaccines to send around the world. And certainly, I mean, the Indian government would probably be receptive of that just because they're dealing with this. But there's many other governments as well that would take vaccines with open arms. And it's all part of this uh, vaccine diplomacy that is so crucial in, in times like these. It seems like the U.S. has faltered a bit in terms of vaccine diplomacy. I mean, we just waived, uh, you know, those intellectual property rights or said we're going to argue for the waiver of those sort of WTO meetings. Uh, while China and Russia, especially China, they've really been, you know, practicing vaccine diplomacy like crazy, sending their vaccines all over the place to the global south. Uh, so, yes, the president wants to send 60 million, the 60 million AstraZeneca vaccines we have to the to those other countries by July 4th. But uh, will it be too late? Who knows? Uh, right now, the U.S. is actively sending some aid to India in the forms of, you know, medical supplies and so on. But uh, it'll be interesting to see, like, you know, if we step up our game on that regard, because I think vaccine diplomacy... There is one moral imperative to, of course, help people, certainly a moral imperative to help people, but helping people in their time of need, helping certain countries in which you have strategic interests is obviously, you know, a strategic thing in the, in the scope of great power competition.
Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, India and the whole COVID situation is certainly something to keep our eyes on. I imagine we'll talk about it next week just because there is really no end in sight and India uh, really is, is doing quite a poor job in managing it. But of course, you know, the such a big population, 18% of the world population, I mean, it's a, it's quite an undertaking. So variants are terrifying, especially the yeah. UK variant, the Brazilian variant, and now you're probably going to get the Indian variants that are coming in. So I mean, yeah, you and I are both vaccinated, but we're probably not vaccinated, or at least our vaccines aren't as effective against uh, these different strains. And so uh, that is- You don't know. Yeah, we don't know. So we don't know. And also before that, I mean, I think the president did actually ban uh, travel to and from India uh, this past week. Uh, But I, I don't think that applies to U.S. citizens. So U.S. citizens who are in India can come back to the U.S. But I mean, you're seeing this travel ban take effect. Uh, or a travel advisor, well, really a travel ban. Uh, so we'll see what other uh, policies are enacted with regards to this. Right. I, you know, just kind of going off that, I wonder what the uh, the Republicans are going to say in Congress with this this quote unquote travel ban, just because we know uh, what the Democrats said when there was a travel ban in place in the early COVID you know days. It's just it's interesting how these things play out. Anyway. Um, before we kind of dig into that too deeply, let's move to Colombia, uh, where it's it's quite a, a frightful scene. At least 24 people have been killed and hundreds injured with clashes between police and protesters. And basically, you know, there were peaceful demonstrations against these tax increases, but have, you know, kind of spiraled out of control with this, uh, the anger with the, the government there, Ivan Duque's government, which is this kind of right-leaning government uh, in the country. And so, uh, again, right, there's been kind of this, you know, months and months of kind of dislike or disdain with the government. And this kind of boiled over with these most recent protests and beginning of Wednesday of last week. And, uh, you know, the, the citizens there and human rights organizations have said that the, the Duque government is using disproportionate force uh, against the, the protesters who, you know, the, the government says, you know, they're armed with guns and Molotov cocktails. Um, it's been blaming the violence on the the left wing guerrilla groups, um, and it's 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 important to know that there's been there's been civil conflict uh, for about fifty years in this country, and so this is just another kind of iteration of this that we've seen. Well, is it an iteration of like the, the FARC situation? It's not. It's not an iteration of the FARC situation. No. This sounds more like domestic turmoil. Yeah. No. This again. The the the, the president is trying to paint it as more of like this is a you know FARC terrorists. Um, but that's really doesn't seem to be the case, right? These are just citizens who are upset with the policies of the government. So he's uh, so the president's actually trying to frame it as as if it's about FARC. Yes, I mean I don't think he's saying FARC. I haven't I haven't read anything that's saying he's saying like left wing, you know, oppositionists, which is I guess a nice way to say FARC. But yeah, that the implicit the implicit connotation. When you say left-wing military, militarists. Yeah, exactly. So um, it, it's certainly quite interesting to see what, what's happening uh, in Colombia. That I mean, he, he basically said that, you know, he's trying to create a quote-unquote a, a space in which to listen to citizens and construct solutions. Uh, but I, I don't think the police have, have heard that uh, statement coming from the president. Um, and so, I mean, re- really what we're seeing, I think an interesting um, kind of quote from uh, a risk analyst, uh, Sergio Guzman, who kind of leads a, a Colombian-based analysis company, said that, uh, quote, Ivan Duque is a lame duck president and his attempts to deflect the blame on the terrorists, communists, and heavy-handed police officers betray a desperate effort to maintain control 
of the national narrative as the 22 elections draw near. So again, I think that sums it up almost perfectly. So when did these protests actually start? Uh, have they been like sort of long standing, or was it just the past week? Or so the the ones the recent ones have I, I believe began last Wednesday, so fairly new. Uh, but I mean, this you know, and there's been some minor crises for the Duque administration over the past you know few years that that it's been in power. Um, but this is uh, among the most violent. Yeah, this was completely off of my radar. I did not realize this was happening. Again, you know, there's, there are things happening around the world that we just, it's not covered in, the, in, in, you know, the typical news. And, you know, you just get lucky on, you know, on, if you're on Twitter or something comes up on some sort of news feed that you kind of hear about this stuff. And so, again, you know, when you have all this instability, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, there are reverberations in the U.S. as well. Like, this is not just a of course, it's a, a domestic situation in Colombia, um, but we got to think about right. A lot of these these countries, right, when there are political crises, that leads to migration, and a lot of the migrants seek to go to more well-off states, such as the United States, and of that, of course, puts pressure on our own immigration. And so, again, right, to put in, the, it's not this isn't an effort to kind of Americanize the issue, but rather it's just a, a it's to point out that yeah. this isn't just something that Colombians have to deal with. Exactly. Well, anyway, moving on from Colombia, I sort of want to highlight something interesting about some elections I've been observing. And we're going to get to the Israel situation in a little bit, but I want to talk about the UK for a minute. So Britain is basically, the United Kingdom is basically, you know, heading for some local elections, some regional elections. Uh, It's looking likely that the conservatives will certainly do well. They will make some gains. But Ryan, I mean, you look at the Conservative Party in Britain, they've been in power for 11 years, 11 straight years. The last Labour Prime Minister was Gordon Brown, who basically finished up the last two years of the Tony Blair term. I mean, essentially, right? Like, I mean, Tony Blair in power between 97 and 2007, and Gordon Brown until 2010. You have David Cameron come in, wins, you know, forms his coalition government in 2010, I believe with the Liberal Democrats. And then uh, I think in 2015, he basically just wins the election himself. And then, you know, Brexit happens, he resigns, uh, Theresa May comes in, she seems very un- incapable of handling the Brexit situation. Yeah, Boris Johnson come in. And then in 2019, Boris Johnson wins a landslide. He wins a landslide. And I mean, it, it seems that the conservatives in Britain have had power for 11 years and they are not going to lose their power anytime soon. They've dealt with crisis after crisis, Brexit, COVID-19, and they're still making gains. And and I think it's very interesting as a case study for all those political scientists out there, all those amateur political scientists, watching what's happening with the Republican Party today and watching the conservatives in Britain. The conservatives, you know, they've straddled, obviously, you know, fiscal conservatism in a pragmatic way. They're, you know, they're for, obviously, uh, you know, universal health care, because that is the British system. They have universal health care in Britain. And uh, they have, I mean, the conservatives were also the ones who basically pushed through gay marriage in 2010, or in the early 2010s. So they've, sort of straddle the line of like fiscal conservatism social issues don't seem to be as strong of you know political positions as you you know would see them in america and you know like i don't really i mean yeah i'm sure surely britain has culture wars but i don't think they're as huge as the culture wars here 
and it's it's intriguing. It's intriguing. Same thing with uh, Angela Merkel's CDU, the Christian Democratic Union, in power for like what fifteen, sixteen years, and uh, and it'll be interesting if the Democrats, you know, perhaps they are going to try to go for some similar, uh, you know, power advantage in that regard. But I mean. <laughs> It's it's crazy to know. It's crazy to watch that sort of occur. Uh, yeah, politics is is gamed and and every country and you know there are these divides that we see in the United States around the world. And so, Andre, just to kind of go a little deeper on the UK situation, the the elections that are occurring on Thursday, the day we're recording, and the, many of the results will be out Friday, which is the day this episode releases. They'll be known, and people are looking to what's happening in Scotland because their parliament uh, has elections, which will. I mean, basically kind of dictate the future of Scotland because there are independence, you know, calls by the, the current government, the, the first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, she leads the, the Scottish Nationalist Party, and they've been trying to have a, a referendum for Scottish independence for a, a quite a, you know, since they've been in power. So not that long, but, you know, a, a handful of years. And so basically, I mean, if, if that party wins the majority in, in the parliament, which is quite likely. Uh, more calls and heavier calls will be will be you know set up in order to have a, an independence referendum, which would kind of devastate the United Kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, and Ryan, when was the last time the Scottish? Uh, I mean, it was a few years ago, right? That they were trying to they had the referendum vote in Scotland. Yeah, you know, I, I think it was 2014, um, and it, it it was you know a resounding no. It was about 55 percent to 44 percent. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that, again, that's, it's, it's close, but not that close. Yeah. So again, we'll see what, what happens this time around and if they actually get a referendum together, but I imagine it'll be far closer of a margin, if not a, a, a yes vote for independence. Yeah. And now sort of moving a bit uh, south and east from Britain, we have Israel. Uh, Israel, what number election was this, Ryan? Was it the fifth election, the sixth election? Something like that. I think it might be six at this point. Honestly, I've lost, I've lost count. Yeah, but I mean, anyway, as in the last couple of elections, and no party really had a strong claim to power. Likud, I think they had the plurality, which gave Netanyahu sort of first dibs on trying to form a coalition within the government by the president. But he has failed to form a coalition government uh, by the deadline that was imposed. So now uh, it's with Yair Lapid, who is the opposition leader. Now, he has the opportunity to form a government, I believe, within a 28-day period. And uh, he apparently is a centrist. I think, Ryan, is he center-left? Is that accurate to say? Uh, yeah, I, th- I do think that's accurate. I would say he's probably as centrist as you can in Israeli politics, which is kind of, you know, he's an enigma in that, in that sense. Uh, but it's interesting that uh, President Rivlin of, of Israel chose uh, Yair Lapid to, to do this. And certainly he's lost complete faith in, in Bibi Netanyahu. And so uh, I, I honestly have no idea what's going to happen here. I mean, it, it's, it seems to me that, I mean, it, it's going to be very difficult for, uh, for Mr. Lapid to kind of form a government in such little time. I mean, it's, he's got a 28-day mandate to do so. And uh, only 56 lawmakers have supported his candidacy. Exactly. So, I mean, uh, so Netanyahu is still technically prime minister. He has the ad- there has to be a prime minister while they're trying to figure out all these power dynamics. So he will be prime minister until a new government is uh, 
formed. But uh, Lapide is a centrist. He is a very centrist person. So maybe perhaps that might help him form a coalition. I think he has tried to make overtures to some of the folks on the right wing. Uh, but I mean, you know, 28 days seems like a long time, but when everyone disagrees with you, it's a short time to, to make those negotiations, make those agreements. So, I mean, uh, and yeah, apparently the, the count is if they don't form a government, then Israel's going to go in for a fifth election in the summer. Wow. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I, as much as you don't want to see it, I right now I don't see really a pathway to you know forming a, a coalition. And so, uh, if if it were my bet, it, I, I'd say we're going to another election. But you know, I've been wrong before. Yeah, yeah. So uh, while we have these elections in Britain, which seem to be clear, these this never-ending cycle of elections in Israel, which never seem to be clear, and. <laughs> Uh, we're certainly dealing with the aftermath of election violence in the United States. Uh, speaking of that election violence, actually, uh, Ryan, I'm sure you saw the news. Uh, Facebook has extended the suspension of Donald Trump from the platform. Yes, they have. Their, their new oversight board you know, said that he can be, right, he he's no longer has to be, at least temporarily, not, not back on the platform, but they basically said that Facebook needs to do a far better job of, of doing this type of stuff. I, I just find it interesting the fact that you know Facebook, this this large multinational corporation, has this oversight board, which essentially is kind of like a, a a de facto court or like a arbitration board in my mind that they make these decisions and they're you know kind of binding to Facebook. Um, and so people are saying like it's it's reminiscent of the the Marbury versus Madison case, which is I I truly don't see how that is comparable. This is a private company's quote unquote oversight board to uphold a a company decision. Um, but it, it nonetheless it is interesting that a company like Facebook is going to stand by some you know oversight board to put together basically kind of cementing the power of this the seemingly independent body. Yeah. And I mean, they basically had to figure out, like, I mean, basically in the decision that they released, they need to find like some quote unquote, some proportionate response in about six months for like what the actual sort of punishment is for quote, the severe violation of Facebook rules by uh, president Trump. Uh, and also, guess who uh, Facebook's VP of Global Affairs and Communications is? It's Nick Clegg. Nick Clegg, the former British politician who well, is a former, I think, deputy prime minister of, uh, of the United Kingdom, which is very interesting. But, uh, you know, going back to sort of the Facebook thing, uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly going to be like, it's certainly a standard they're setting. Uh, for how you know Facebook is going to treat other political leaders, hopefully, uh, and I say hopefully because, like, I think I, I I believe that Trump should have been you know edit that out. I I say hopefully because there are certainly many politicians in the world who have you know uh, certainly used social media to incite violence or to spread fake news or to do you know other different things. So. There needs to be this sense of universality in the imposition of these rules, right? It cannot merely be a, an American-centric sort of approach to this. As Ryan, you said, Facebook is a multinational corporation. Right. I mean, you can see that in the composition of the board. It's not just a bunch of Americans that are sitting on this board. This is people from around the world, so academics to politicians, 
Um, it, it's a it's a fascinating concept, and if they do this right, you're probably going to see many other oversight boards emerge across many other multinational corporations. Exactly, exactly, and like I mean. I feel like some people have sort of thought about this oversight board as more of like a PR thing, but, you know, other people are like, okay, they're actually taking these decisions. They're actually making these decisions, you know, in an independent fashion. But, you know, I don't know how Facebook as a company runs internally, so I'm not going to make any assumptions about it. Again, this is, we're yet to see really how this actually pans out. We know that there's this decision out there. Um, but again, if, if they can get this right, if they can somehow figure out how to add the governance aspect to kind of corporate America, I mean, that's going to change the way in which capitalism works. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of capitalism, Ryan, how's your Dogecoin doing? Oh, yeah. Well, that isn't that the epitome of capitalism, or I don't even know what it is the epitome of. It's it's crazy. Um, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens on Saturday. Elon Musk, of course, is on SNL, and he already said that there's gonna be some Dogecoin like skit that he's going to do. So that might probably have an effect on prices. Um, I'm, I'm not going to give any investment advice on on this podcast, but I will say I've sold most of my Dogecoin um, and I don't plan on buying more. All of mine is still in the bank. All of mine is still there. And I'm watching it go up <laughs> and down and up and down and up and down. And and I'm like, should I sell it? And then it goes back up. And I'm like, no, I shouldn't. So I should wait until Saturday well, when either everyone's going to sell it or everyone's going to buy more of it. We're, we're going to have to do a blockchain episode just because the underlying technology is interesting. Um, and it, it has impacts on national security and foreign policy, Andre. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I love buying these <laughs> meme coins because it's making me some money. <laughs> hey, you know what? Yeah. You know, not, not only are we podcasters, but we are, you know, amateur um, Dogecoin investors. Yeah, I know. I mean, apparently, if you put in your stimulus check, fourteen hundred, into Dogecoin yeah. when it came out, uh, not when it came out, but at the time you got the stimulus, you would have had five hundred thousand dollars. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had done that. Oh, the volatility. Um, <laughs> you know, remember? You remember when we were talking to Michael Barr about about you know Bitcoin and and blockchain and these cryptocurrencies? And he was like. Oh, I am not at all sorry that I missed the boat on that. Like, it is not good. And then we completely ignored his advice. We completely ignored his advice. And <laughs> so, I don't know. What were the freaking uh, dog meme coins? Yeah. Well, again, the, what we're talking about, everyone listening, you know, don't listen to, to this. You can, you know, you can end the podcast here. Uh, <laughs> just um, so again, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, you know, watch, watch for Dogecoin. It's going to the moon. Um, anyway, this this has been What in the World. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. I'm Andre Gunnawala. See you soon. Bye.